software has been eating the world long enough now that people realize, hey, if you really want your software to be successful, you need product managers to be there. And so you're seeing, that's why you're seeing the uptick in hiring and growth of PMs and addition of PMs to companies that never had that role and things and the growing of importance of it. So with all this plethora of new PMs in the market, there's a need to train them. Welcome to Innovation Talks. Join us weekly as we discuss with distinguished industry guests how to refine and improve corporate innovation and new product development. Hosted by Paul Heller, Sophion Chief Evangelist. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the show. Hope you're doing well out there and having a great week. My guest today is Dan Olson. Dan is a product management trainer, consultant, and speaker. He's written a management book called The Lean Product Playbook, which we will talk about. And he does talks and interactive training workshops and helps companies build great products and strong product teams. Dan, welcome to the show. Thanks, Paul. It's great to be here. Yeah. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Good, good, good. Where are you, where are you, where are you calling in from? Where are you from? I am calling in from Silicon Valley, California, where I've lived for quite some time now. Probably work with some great companies out there, I bet, huh? Yeah, no, it's great. There's a lot of tech here, but the good news is there's a lot of tech all over, all well, there over is now. the states and the world, you know, so it's nice to see the global expansion. Yeah, for sure. How's, how's Silicon Valley been hit with the whole work from home and come back to the office or don't come back to the office? Or I think companies are wrestling with that. They were 100% work remote. And, you know, it's funny. Some companies are more flexible and saying, hey, you can still work at home if you want. Other companies are really trying to pressure, you know, push people to come in yeah. like two or three days a week. So it's very interesting to see how employees are responding to you know, different policies that companies are trying to do. I mean, I think on the one hand, everybody values face-to-face time with their colleagues. On the other hand, people have kind of gotten used to the productivity and flexibility of working bumps and not having to commute. You know, a lot of companies out here have just got rid of their spaces. They were paying these expensive leases. And like, why are we leasing this? The spaces are beautiful, but it's like no one sits a ghost town. So it's interesting. I think that, you know, the COVID remote work has probably made a permanent shift in how we think about people working. Yeah, we'll see what that how that does. Yeah, we'll see where it goes. Who knows? You never know. <laughs> Can't predict <No>. the future. <laughs> yeah. Well, Dan, how'd you first get involved in product management? Well, gosh, let's see. So my parents got me a computer when I was a kid, so I was comfortable coding. And, uh, you know, I built some apps, simple apps back then to meet the needs that I had at the time. Like one was to practice for a spelling bee. That was probably the first functional, like useful app that I built, you know. <laughs> goofed around with trying to make some games and things like that. Then I was an electrical engineering major. And then, you know, the first job I did out of college, my title wasn't product manager. I was basically doing nuclear submarine design with the Navy. And then later I went to business school. That's what brought me out here is to go to business school. And when I was trying to figure out what to do out of business school, I, I just, I discovered product management as this relatively new emerging career. And the more I learned about it, the more it sounded great. Like you're not actually building the product. You know, I wanted to get more on the business side of things, but work closely with the technologists and the engineers. And so that, and the more I learned about it, the more excited I got. I realized that I had never done it and I never worked in commercial software or in the, in the commercial sector at all. So I said, where's the best place to learn? I asked people, where's the best place to learn product management? And at the time, pretty much everybody university said Intuit was the best company to learn. And, it, and luckily I got a job there and it was, it was the best place to learn. So Technically, the first time I had a product manager title was into it after business school. But in hindsight, what I was doing with the nuclear submarine design stuff 
was in a sense very technical product management. It was cross-functional collaboration, working on a complex product, clarifying requirements, understanding constraints, understanding what's possible, you know, understanding, evaluating options, right, in a in a very matrix cross-functional organization. So when I fell into product management, now I was working with developers and designers, which are different functions than I'd worked with before, but the general idea of cross-functional collaboration to figure out, to clearly define what the requirements and objectives are, and then to work with the team to figure out how we meet those requirements or objectives. That was pretty similar. Yeah. How many how many product managers would exist at a company like Intuit when you were there? Well, when I was there, it wasn't as big. You know, Intuit, it's funny because there are some companies, some products, it's, it's like a unique problem to have. If your product has been so successful for so long, you're constantly adding code, adding features. Like think of Microsoft Word or Adobe Photoshop. Those are some of the longstanding products. Well, Intuit's Quicken has been around since the DOS days. Yes. So it's been around for a while. And I'm, of course, now they have, they have QuickBooks and TurboTax they've had for a while. When I joined, it was, I think, around 3,000, 4,000 people. And then once you divide it into the divisions of Quicken, QuickBooks, and TurboTax, and TurboTax is located down in San Diego from an acquisition we did a while ago, the Quicken team itself, which was the original team, was not that big. So, for example, when I joined the Quicken product management team, it was me and two other product managers on Quicken for Windows, which was the big product, and then one on Quicken for Mac. So a four, four individual contributors with like a group product manager and then like a GM above us. So really small, highly leveraged team. So, but to answer your question, I mean, maybe at that point in time, gosh, I mean, even QuickBooks and TurboTax, you know, probably less than 100 okay. out of 4,000 well, people, right? Yeah. You know, 50, to me, that's a big a, size. Yeah. 150 product managers. Yeah, no, no. It was a very, it was a well understood, well defined role into it, which was not the case. And then the next company probably would be Yahoo. Yahoo had a role that they called producers. It was called producer, but basically it was a product manager that kind of, came a little, you know, that started up. And so that was the next place. And then Microsoft, back in the day, they had title. This is back in the days when people called it a program manager, they would call it, but it actually was a product manager. So from the old days, those are kind of the three companies where you could get kind of a true, well-defined, well-understood, empowered product management experience in the workplace. Wow. Yeah. And and as you said, even now, when you go around the companies, they don't always call a product manager. Right. There's still other names for it. Yeah. I used to, you know, I used to bring up the Shakespeare at Rose by any other name. I'd be like a product manager <laughs> by any other name. You see that less these days. It is true. It is true. But back, I mean, back in that, those days, there were arguments about should product management report into marketing or engineering. Luckily, we're past that. Now you have VPs of product and CPOs that report directly to the, C- the CEO or GM. So that debate's kind of solved. But to your point, you still get ambiguity around. Sometimes a product marketing manager is doing similar stuff for a program manager. The biggest thing is product owner versus product manager too and, and business analysts. You know, so again, sometimes you, to your point, you can't rely on the title and just infer, imply a lot from the title. You have to kind of get down to the details of what the person's actually doing. But that's less of an issue these days, luckily, than it used to be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, tell me about, about this book, you know, the, the Lean Product Playbook. How did you come to yeah. write that? So I started my, you know, PM career at Intuit. And then after working there for a while and kind of, and I basically, after five years, like, okay, I think I've learned most of what I came to learn here from Intuit. I, what I want to do now is go apply what I've learned to startups, right? I've always kind of wanted to, that was kind of longer term vision. And so I went to be a product leader at a few startups, I worked as a product leader, at a few startups. And after doing a couple of those, I was like, okay, now I've, I've worked on several web products, now three web products now. 
And I used to, you know, I know how to code. I'm a, I'm a double E. I'm a, I've been coding since I was nine. I just don't know how to code this new web stuff. So let me go, you know, figure, let me go take a bunch of classes. So I decided to invest in taking like, you know, PHP, MySQL, HTML, CSS, Apache, Unix, like Photoshop. Like, let me just do invest. So it was literally almost 20 hours a week of investing in classes. I was going to just bite the bullet for like six months and just get it done. And I got an offer as a, as a product manager, as a, as a head of product for a startup. And I was like, and I really liked what they were doing, but I didn't have bandwidth to be a full-time employee because I committed to these classes. So I said, hey, can we work out some consulting arrangements? So that's how I kind of accidentally stumbled into becoming product management consultant, like an interim mm-hmm. head of product for startups. And one of the unexpected side effects of that is I would work with one company for six months and then another one for a year or whatever. I saw, instead of just working in one company, I got to see multiple companies, right? And eventually I would work at like two at a time, like one on Monday, Wednesday, Friday, one on Tuesday, Thursday. And so I just saw way more data points than I would have seen as an employee in one company. And so I started to see patterns, right? And in parallel, some friends were, you know, lecturing at Stanford and they asked me to come in. And product management still wasn't that pervasive at that point in time. I said, hey, can you come in and give a class, on you know, guest lecture class on product management? So I did that. That's the first time I kind of put together slides to kind of share the frameworks that I've been using and developed. And so that kind of led to more speaking. So basically, I was speaking to groups of product people and they would ask questions and I would go create new slides and talks to answer their questions. And I was consulting with all these companies and there were questions and patterns coming up. And basically, that kind of led to the frameworks, the precursor frameworks to the book in my talks. And then I gave a talk. One of the talks I gave got viewed by an editor at Wiley and he reached out and said, hey, have you thought about writing a book? And I had thought about writing a book, but I never got around to it because it's a lot of work. Why would you? And so (laughs) that led to writing the book. And so basically, um, that's when I kind of sat down and and really um, took some of the frameworks to the next level. That's where uh, the product market fit pyramid came out and the lean product process came out. You know, a lot of the other frameworks that I use in that process were already, I had already developed and, and used, but that's when it kind of brought it all together. So it was really cool to sit down and do some deep work and write that book. It's a long book. It's like 335 pages. I was like, if I'm going to write a book, I want to like, you know, have it be <laughs> comprehensive, you know, and who knows if I'm going to write another one. And so I want to, I want it to be comprehensive. Yeah. And so it's, it, it took like 14 months to write while I was consulting full time. So, but it was great. So it was good. And, um, it's been well received and I'm excited because the feedback on Amazon is very positive and the things that they say are, Hey, it's very pragmatic and applied, which makes me happy because that's what I like to do. I mean, I love learning. I love theories and concepts, but what I like to do is then have a really solid framework and then like show how to apply it so that people can apply it the very next day. Gotcha. Gotcha. Great experience. It was a great opportunity to see all those different companies. When you think about, when I think about the the challenges, there's kind of two levels. There's a challenge that I, as an individual product manager face, and then there's the challenge of we as a company or as a leadership team face in product management. Position those two for me. Yeah, no, it's true. It's interesting. It's true because as as a product manager, you've got to figure out how to do your job, yeah, and how to work effectively with engineers and and designers. And you know, the funny thing is, I as I like to say, product development is a team sport. You know, and I'll I'll flash up a picture of the Golden State Warriors, right? Our, our team out here, and you know, in basketball, there's five people, right? And two of them are forwards, and two are guards, and one's a center, and they don't just show up at the court and just figure out how to play. But in the business world, we just throw, we hire a bunch of people from different places 
we say, okay, you're a developer, you're a designer, you're a PM. Okay, go, go for it, guys, right? There's no concept of do we each understand the position that we're playing and what your position is in relation to mine, like what the roles are. There's no concept of plays or practice. We don't talk about how what plays we're going to do. We don't practice the plays that we do, right? You just throw people in a big mixing pot and you go, let's go for it, right? And then a great example, there's Agile. Oh, oh hey, Paul, you did Agile at your last company, right? Okay, cool. Hey, you did Agile, right? Hey, Sally, you did Agile. Great, just do Agile together. I guarantee the way Agile was practiced is not the same, right? And so you end up with this like uh, – it's like the the five blind people and the elephant thing where like nobody really has a view of the whole – like what the pro- – yeah, so you're right. This, that's happening at two levels. It's happening at the tactical level, at the product team level. Do they really know how to like take their game, you know, closer to what an you know, true NBA team level play or not? And then at the leadership level, you're right. Like the head of product, the head of engineering, to a certain extent, the CEO. Are they like you know clarifying the roles and practices and processes, you know, for that their people are supposed to follow and reinforcing that, right? It's good to see companies that understand, especially and the software world is ahead of other types of product management. And software companies tend to understand the value of of good product management. They've established chief product officers and whatnot. But non-software companies, they still don't have a grip on product management to the same degree. They might have a chief technology officer over their product, but they're they're still not there and they're trying to learn from from the kind of the software world of of how to do good product management. I see a lot of that. I just see a lot of maturity in the software world, less maturity in other industries. Yeah, I think in general that's true. And it's been really exciting over the last four or five years to see product management really explode because I don't think like was as common to have CPOs and it still wasn't as common that, that every most companies would have a PM You know, I remember from like the startup days around 2010, 2011, when UX design was getting kind of more awareness and hot and some startups literally were debating like, why do we even need a PM? If we have engineers and designer, why do we need a PM? Right. And so I actually gave a talk with a design friend of mine where we talked about the differences and, you know, but so I will just say the way I think about it is definitely not black and white. It's a bell curve. So within software, you've got a bell curve. And the median of that bell curve is higher than the median of the bell curve in non-software companies. But you still have some non-software companies that are at the three sigma level on their curve. And they're actually higher than plenty of companies in the software world, right? (laughs) Right. So it's it's not like black and white. And and what's really interesting is um, lately there's been talk about like, hey, are you kind of a software first company or are you like a digital first company or are you like a legacy company, right? And a lot of my clients, honestly, over the last two, three years, it's actually exciting to see, as I like to say, they existed well before the internet. Right? These are companies that had brick and mortar presences before the internet was there, before computing was there. You know, some of these are like retail, in the retail space, like big companies like Walmart. Like Walmart's been around forever before the internet, right? Or like Nike or Taco Bell, things like that. And so to your point, People that are not have not didn't start out as software first companies, right? You're not some SaaS startup that just started. You've been SaaS the whole time, but you're realizing the importance. Obviously, Nike has apps and websites and you know supply chains and all kinds of things where technology is relevant. So it's great to see those companies also recognizing the importance of product management and and training their teams, which is why I end up talking to them. They realize, okay, and usually it's interesting. It's after an agile transformation. They've already done the agile transformation because there's also the whole waterfall the agile thing. And then it's like after they've done an agile transformation, I think they realize, okay, cool. We've got people working in two-week sprints instead of 18-month or 12-month release cycles. That's great. 
And, you know, what I like to do sometimes is pose a thought experiment. Imagine for a sec, you wave a magic wand, you could wave a magic wand, and your team is suddenly like world-class agile. Like they write the best user stories. They never, they estimate their story points perfectly. They deliver exactly what they say they're going to deliver each sprint. They have zero quality issues. Imagine for a sec, you're in some ideal agile world. Then the question becomes, great, what are you actually feeding into this agile machine? for them to build? Is it the right stuff? Is it the stuff that's really going to create customer value? Or is it just stuff that's not going to create customer values or remove business metrics or not, right? And so I think that's where PM comes in, right? Once you kind of get through the mechanics of Agile, it's like, okay, that's cool that we can work in this way. But what, how do we decide what to work on? You know, how do we prioritize what's going to really make a difference? And so that's why teams then they realize, okay, that's where we need a stronger product management function to improve that. Yeah, yeah, fantastic. Interesting to see that evolution happen because I'm seeing it as well. Companies I talk to the same thing. For many of them are still trying to figure out agile first. How do you do agile in a, in, sure. in a physical product world? But they're right. You're right. I mean, it's right there with that. It's, it's following its right on its heels. So that's interesting to hear. So Dan, what would you say if you had to say, well, best practices in, in product management? Is there such a thing? And, and what does that look like? There, I think there definitely is. The good news is there are more books and blogs and videos and, thing, and and conferences where you can, you know, learn from thought leaders, best practices. I do, again, think that there's a bell curve of how well understood they are and how they're adopted, right? And I think that, you know, hopefully the median of that curve is moving up over time. The interesting thing is you get a lot of new entrants coming in. You know, it's it's so funny. Like there could be some great book or framework by Crossing the Chasm, right? Jeffrey Moore's classic Crossing the Chasm. I was, you know, speaking at a graduate school and somebody on the panel mentioned Crossing the Chasm and I could see that there were just blank looks from all yeah. the 20-year-olds in the class. And so the person kept going. I'm like, hey, time out. Hold on a sec. Hey, who's actually heard of Crossing the Chasm? Like not a single hand went up, right? So it's, it's in a sense, it, it's like, even though the industry as a whole knows about crossing the chasm, the new people have to learn it, right? So it's just weird. That's why you end up, I think, constantly adding people. But back to your question, it's, yeah, it's, it's interesting to see, you know, people leveling up on it and you can learn best practice. And one of the things that's interesting is, you know, like I'm, I was electrical engineering major, I'm a science and physics geek. In the, in the physical world, you could actually set up rules like, you know, like Newton's laws of gravitation or Einstein's equations or, Maxwell's equations. And it can be like very, very predictive, right? Product management isn't quite black and white science like that. It's also not just random throw spaghetti against the wall. It's more like probabilistic, right? Odds. Like if you do this, it reminds me a little bit of poker a little bit, right? There's a little luck and there's a little, there's a little causality. And, and so I, the, the interesting thing is you have different thought leaders and when different thought leaders independently come to the same conclusions or principles, that just gives you a lot of confidence that like, okay, there must be something here. If like two or three or four of them are all saying the same thing based on their experience, empirical experience, that's probably some like general principle that's going to improve your odds, you know? So, and it's funny because like specifically one of the frameworks that I developed into it when I had to prior, you know, prioritize what customer problems we can solve, I developed an importance versus satisfaction. I tried a lot of different frameworks. And luckily, we had a lot of data. We had a great market research person that worked with us. We had just had, I walked into a lot of data, and I just analyzed that slice and dice the data a lot of different ways. And the way that really made the most sense was this importance for satisfaction. So I developed it. I used it. And then a few years after I developed it on my own, I came across a book by Tony Olick 
and I'm reading it and my jaw just drops because he's like, yeah. importance versus satisfaction. I'm like, what? <laughs> like, what are the odds? Right. What are the odds that we both, and you know, there's a difference in how we calculate our opportunity scores. You're going to get the same kind of rank order of results. It's just, just a different, but the actual fun, everything fundamentally about the framework is exactly the same. Right. And he also had tried a lot of different things and, and ended up at that one. Right. So that's a, it's an example. And even like the other one is I've been talking about like problem space versus solution space for a long, long time since 2006. And you hear more about it out there now. But even when you get into details of people like, yeah, when I like to write customer needs stories, I like to start with a verb. I came to the same conclusion. It should start with a verb, right? And, <laughs> and so did Tony and so did more other people, right? Like, yeah, it should start with a verb. Yeah. You know, like, yeah. Anyway, things like that. You know, it's just, it's just interesting. Yeah, it is. It's, it's, there's a serendipity to it. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Hey, uh, you're doing it the same way I am. Yeah, exactly. Well, Dan, what piece of advice would you give somebody if they came to you and said, hey, Dan, I'm, I want to start my in product management, start my career in product management. <laughs> what would you tell me? Well, let's assume they just got their first product job. What yeah. I would say is, again, this is where many experts agree that great products are built by teams where they're, at least these three functions work well together, product management, UX design, and development, right? So you see this people, this Venn diagram with three circles, a time you see multiple thought leaders sharing this, right? And so I, I think we all believe that. And it's not to mean there aren't other roles or circles as well, like QA. Like when I worked it into it, you know, when I worked it into it, we had well-defined feature teams where I was the PM. There was like a tech lead engineering manager. And then there were like one or more. Actually, there was an engineering manager. There was a dev lead. And there's like one or more devs, depending on the size of the team. There was one or more QAs, depending on the size of the team. And there was a documentation person, right? Who was fractional. But those were the roles that that's how you populated a team with those roles, right? So in that case, you'd have like five circles instead of three. So no, yeah. it's not meant to like exclude anybody, right. but the, right. the core, basic core you absolutely have to have are PM, UX, and dev, right? And so then if you take a step back and you, as a PM, you're like, how can I create the most value, deliver the most value to my team? What I like to do is kind of oversimplify everybody's job by summing it up with one word. Like, so developers, if you had to sum up their job in one word, what is their main job? It's pretty straightforward. It's to develop. Their job is to develop, develop the software, develop the product. Designers, what's their main job? Again, it's pretty trivial. Their job is to design the product. And then you go to product managers, like, what's your what's your job? <laughs> it's like, well, managing is very vague and high level. I don't think that's so the single word that I would use is define, actually. Your job is to define the customers, understand the customers, and define what their problems are. So then when we go and design and build them, we're actually solving real problems, right? And and if you go back, you know, you tie these phases back to problem space and solution space. Just briefly to explain that for people that may not be familiar with that, like most of the time on Scrum teams or product teams or feature teams, people will be like, yeah, I think we should be fe build feature X. And then you debate about should we build feature X? Should we build feature Y instead? Should we, how should we build feature X? Should it look like this? Should it look like this? And when you do that, you're jumping straight to a solution, basically, right? And so the idea of problem space is, well, Let's get clear. What's the problem that that's going to solve? It's great that you think it would be a good idea to build feature X, but are we clear on what customer problem that would solve? Right. And when you, and so you realize there's this, like, there's these two sides, you know, there's two different domains, problem space, which is actually devoid of solutions. You get really clear on what's the problem we're trying to solve. Hey, we're trying to make it quicker for people to file their tax return. We're trying to make it faster for people to do this business process, or we're trying to improve the reliability of this or whatever it, you know, whatever that is. And then, you know, because if you just jump to solutions, you know, 
you hear the statistic like over 80% of new products fail. I think that's one of the key fundamental reasons why is people go straight to solutions. They think this is going to be a cool solution. Mm-hmm. They build it, they launch it, and it fails because they were never clear on the problem that it was going to solve. They didn't validate that that was an important high priority problem to solve. And then the last piece is less is like they didn't validate that, that their, their specific solution was a good solution. Honestly, the biggest risk is people just not starting out with customer problems, not starting out with problem space, right? So, so again, that if you go back to it, developers, they're developing in solution space. They've got to launch product that works in the solution space. And by the way, everyone's default way of thinking is solution space because we live in the solution space, right? So it's not like you're born going, oh, check out this problem space. It's a learned mindset mentality. And once you have that awareness, you'll, you'll be in a feature team meeting and somebody goes, hey, I think we should add a drop down here. A little yellow flag goes off. It's like, hey, wait a minute. They just proposed a solution. Let me call a timeout and just say, hey, can you, and all you have to do is just use the five whys. Hey, okay, Paul, you want to add a drop down. Can you help me understand what problem that's going to solve for customers? And you may or may not have thought about it. You probably didn't, maybe implicitly thought about it, but definitely not explicitly. And so then it starts a discussion. And then once we get care on the problem, well, we want to pick an easy way for people to select their shipping address. Okay, well, maybe a drop, now we can have a discussion. Is a drop down the best solution? Are there other solutions that could be better or cheaper or higher ROI? You know. So, so it's kind of like ready, fire, aim. Mm. You just jump straight to solutions. And yes. that's where you're, one of the ways you're introducing risk, right? You're making, without realizing it, you're assuming this solution that I think we should build is solving some undefined customer problem that is actually really valuable to customers, but you didn't validate any of those assumptions, right? So, so I would just, I would, the first thing I would say to PMs is, hey, your main job is to define, which consists of two main components. Really make sure you understand the customer, right? And so when you're new to a space or company, you've got to just invest the time to build that customer knowledge because there's no one else on the team that is on the hook to know the customer better. Right? Sure, it'd be great if devs have some customer exposure. It'd be awesome if designers did. But at the end of the day, who's on the hook to really be the expert and really define who they are? It's you, right, in, in product management. And then the second part of it is once you kind of build that customer knowledge, can you clearly understand and define the customer needs or problems that your team could solve for people? Because that's those two things are the unique kind of information that you're bringing to the team, in my opinion. Yeah, sure, you're critiquing designs and saying, hey, why don't we do this? What you're making suggestions on both the designs and the, the live product and the code, but your main value. And, if, and by the way, if all you're doing is running scrums, and critiquing code and checking bugs and critiquing mockups and spending zero time on customers and problems, then no one else on the team is going to do that, right? And so that's you're gonna you're setting yourself up for failure by doing that. Yeah, you sure will. You're gonna drift and drift and drift, and then, like you said, you're gonna have a product nobody wants. Yeah, uh, seen it many times, many times. Well, Dan, when you look back at uh, some of your your history, do you have a particular success story? It really kind of stands out. You say, oh, that's a great example from your past, something that just. Yeah, I mean, there's there's several. It's it's interesting. Like, um, again, back when I was, it was a lot of fun to be like an interim header product for startups back in the day. And so there are actually three that that I, I worked there early on, and then they went on to IPO and become unicorns. Like one is actually one medical group, which is a really super exciting story um, because they basically realized, hey, you know, healthcare isn't, optimize and you should be able, why can't you see your doctor the same day? And why can you only talk to your doctor for 10 minutes? Why can't you, you know, like, yeah. so it wasn't in a sense, it wasn't very patient or customer centric the way healthcare had evolved, right? It's like optimized for insurance companies 
optimized for providers in a sense. So it was really cool. They're like, hey, we want to optimize for the patient, right? And they had this crazy idea of let's charge a membership fee, a subscription fee, right? And so it's just great to see, you know, that they were very successful. The other one is Medallia, which is in the B2B space, customer management space. They basically had bootstrapped for a while. And then they finally took some BC. So I helped them grow their product team. But probably the one that's the most exciting is actually Box. That's the third unicorn oh, that I yeah. helped in the early days because, you know, I remember they were worried. They were just, you know, four, four kids that dropped out of college. It's a great story of the founders and just they dropped out of college. They were friends and, and they were building this, you know, file storage collaboration tool. And, you know, this was like 2007, right? I was there when they were post series A and they were really, really worried. Like, Hey, Google is going to launch Google drive and they're just going to like, you know, Google's going to, we're like this 20 person startup, 10, 20 person startup. If Google comes after this market, they're just going to crush us. Right. And, and it's funny because every once in a while, you know, some entrepreneur will try to raise money and some skeptical VC might be like, why can't Google just do this? And, and so it's funny if you take it to the extreme, it's like, well, why does anybody ever start a startup? Let's <laughs> yeah, right. do it. Like, there must be reasons why these other companies, you know, that doesn't, that, that basic high level logic doesn't hold. It doesn't make sense. Right. Yeah. Like, yeah, if you're doing a search engine, sure. Right. But, and we'll talk about that more in a sec, but basically, you know, but they were really worried that that was going to come out. And then sure enough, you know, Google drive came out, but just because there's another product like Dropbox succeeded, box succeeded. Right. And so it just realize it makes you realize. And again, it comes down to how well do you understand the customer problems? And what is, how good is your user experience? You know, what use cases are you supporting? Right. And so they really, you know, it's a great story of a kind of David and Goliath kind of story where just by being really customer centric, right. And having a good user experience, they were able to, you know, create a lot of market value in the marketplace for our customers. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned in passing their search. Yeah. You have a lot of thoughts about that these days. Well, no, because one of the questions we talked about was like, hey, what's the one interesting piece of industry news? And it's funny because, you know, speaking of the importance versus satisfaction framework, I will use that to actually give a very precise definition of what disruptive innovation means. You know, I like the joke that a lot of people are like, yeah, I'm disrupting, I'm disrupting. You know, people like, people like to say they're disrupting an industry and especially here where I live at the cafes and stuff. But far smaller percentage of people that are saying they're disrupting something are actually disrupting. Yeah. So what's interesting is you end up with these, these kind of um, competitive markets where there's like a dominant player. So like insert, like roll the clock back three, four months ago and right. you're looking at the search engine market shares that have been like that forever. And it's like, gosh, there's Google and then everyone else is really low digits, right? Of usage. I mean, who's everybody else? Like Bing, Bing you know, maybe DuckDuckGo, yeah. like just, you know, DuckDuckGo is like a privacy player or whatever. And then all of a sudden chat, you know, so everyone's like, you know, rolling along, thinking everything's static. And then boom, chat GPT comes out. And you're like, whoa, this could, this could threaten search. Like this is like, could be the next wave. It could be the thing that disrupts search, right? So all of a sudden it's like, you go from having a market where the market leader is, you know, everyone feeling like, oh, it's a, it's a static market. It's the way it's going to be. It's just how it is. And then boom, you get some disruptive innovation like that, that, that could potentially, you know, disrupt it a lot. It's a wild story, isn't it? It's really, yeah. got, you know, put Google back on their heels a little bit. And it's going to be fun to see where it goes. But I don't think there's any going back, right? No, <laughs> I don't think the genie can get back in the bottle at this point. No, <laughs> yeah, definitely not. Right. And it's funny because there was all this, you know, that's the other thing back to solution spaces. A lot of times when there are new hot tech trends, 
they're almost always solution space. Yeah. Oh, crypto, blockchain. You know, and I, I like to just ask my class when I'm teaching this, is blockchain a problem or a solution? And they think about it, it's like, it's a solution. Is crypto, you know, it's a solution, right? And in chatbots, not this round, the first round of chatbots years ago, right, for customer support and stuff, it's a solution, right? And sometimes you get some, you know, some hippo senior stakeholder, here's some podcasts about chatbots, comes in the next day, what's our chatbot strategy, you know? <laughs> what's our what's our blockchain strategy and you see yeah. companies like adding on these weird initiatives that really don't organically fit in or make sense they're falling into the shiny object syndrome of like solution du jour technology du jour right and so the interesting thing about ai is people have been banging on the ai drum for for over a year for they've been pouring all this money and people into it and only now are we seeing like major anyway i'm sure there are niche applications here and there but not only now are you seeing like a big major application like chat gpt which really to the problem space side of it i mean it's providing tremendous value in so many different ways i mean people right. are using it you know to create all sorts of content it's just so cool. right yeah well what are you working on now that's exciting if i if there's not enough right <laughs> yeah yeah no i mean the good news is again because Product management just exploded in the last several years, and it's still growing. It's like it's it's growing like crazy. So you're you're seeing traditional software companies realizing they want to up level. You're seeing the digital transformation companies, like we were talking about, saying, "Gosh, we really want to." They're investing. They've built out their product team, and now they want to train them. So it's fun. the the other kind of lens I put on it is Mark Andreessen famously said, "Hey, you know, software is going to eat the world, right?" And so people always knew you needed developers. So hiring developers was always a no brainer. And I think that what's happened is software has been eating the world long enough now that people realize, Hey, if you really want your software to be successful, you need product managers to be there. And so you're seeing, that's why you're seeing the uptick in hiring and growth of PMs and addition of PMs to companies that never had that role and things and the growing of importance of it. So with all this plethora of new PMs in the market, there's a need to train them, right? Because unlike, an accountant or a doctor or a lawyer where there's like this well-defined academic pipeline, that's not the case in product management. And so it ends up being more hands-on training from practitioners, you know, like me and others. And so that's how I spend my time is teaching a lot of private workshops for companies, which is a lot of fun because I have, you know, I tailor the content for them and I've so much, I've been doing this since 2005. So I have thousands of PowerPoint slides and case studies, you know, (laughs) to bring to the table. So it's a lot of fun and it's a lot of fun to watch, them and touch base with them a few months later and see how their practices have grown. So, so that's, you know, a lot of the other thing that's going on. It's cool is they'll, they'll bring me in and other people for private training workshops. They will also now they're starting to organize like a product day for their org or for their company where it's like once a year or sometimes multiple times a year or more than once a year, they'll get the product team together and they'll bring in external speakers and thought leaders as well as internal people just to kind of like talk about how do we improve our craft which is really nice to see because product managers, as you know, we're super busy all the time, right? There's always more work. There's always one more thing you could do, right? One more user story you could write, one more thing you could prioritize, one more whatever the user research you could do. So you have to draw the line somewhere to get any sleep, right? And so, and so, so that's the thing is rarely we're so in the trenches, just executing, executing, executing that we rarely take a time out and lift our head up and say, cool, let's talk about how, how do we play basketball as a team? How do we do that? How do we want this? Let's go, let's work on dribbling. Let's work on passing. Let's work on shooting. Let's work on rebounding, whatever it is. Right. And so it's always very refreshing and people appreciate it. And also, you know, PMs usually divide and conquer. So we're, you're on that feature team. I'm on this feature team. 
yeah, we may see each other briefly in the hallway or at the monthly product team meeting, but it's all full of business just talking about what we need to get done. We never get a chance to compare notes. Yeah. And so it's, it's always like, it's funny. I got, anytime you get a group of product managers together, product therapy ensues, right? It's just therapy <laughs> ensues. Like, oh, can you believe the dev did this to me or this stakeholder did, oh, it happened to me too, you know? Yeah. Yeah. A lot of, a lot of cross. Oh yeah. It's happened to me too. A lot of yeah. that is therapy. You're right. Yeah. And you realize, cause I mean, I've seen so many different product managers and teams, you know, they think this is unique. This challenge is unique to them. I'm like, now that's like about 60% of people <laughs> PMs deal with about 80% of PMs deal with that. 60% deal with that, you know, so it's, it's empowering. Then they realize, Oh, and then they can go and Google and we can talk about how to make things better. That's cool. That's cool. So Dan, if somebody wants to engage with you, what's, how does that, what does that model look like? Do they reach out to you through your website or they say, yeah. look, we got this problem and you kind of come in and look at it and. Yeah. Yeah. People. Yeah. So usually, I mean, my main website is my name, Dan hyphen Olson, O-L-S-E-N.com. There's a get in touch or contact form there that will send me an email. I, I get, you know, one to three of those a day from people. It could be anywhere from, Hey, I want to train my team to, Hey, yeah. Want to get your opinion on this product to, Hey, we're looking for advisor for this, like whatever it is. So that's one way to get in touch with me. And there are links on my, on that website, dan-olson.com to the book on Amazon and, and the book, by the way, it's been translated into like Chinese and Thai, Turkish, Polish, and there's a Russian edition that's supposed to come out this fall. So anyway, it's, it's available in other languages if someone else prefers. It's also available on Kindle and it's also available on Audible. You know, I, I personally use Audible a lot. And then on my website, there are also links to my speaking schedule as well as talks that I've given. So I've given a lot of talks and they're actually on my YouTube channel. There's a link to it from my website. But also if you just go to youtube.com slash Dan Olson, um, you can see all my talks as well as talks from other product thought leaders because one thing we didn't mention that I do is for nine years now, I've been running a product community where each month I bring in a top product speaker. Since I'm an author and speaker myself, I'm friends with a lot of these folks. And so these are like top speakers you would normally only see at a conference, but you can just come in and see them in a, in a webinar. And we used to do it in person, actually add into it headquarters in Mountain View, but with COVID, we took it online, which has actually has been a blessing because now people, you don't have to live within an hour of Mountain View. So we have people from all over the States you know, Central South America, Australia, New Zealand, the time zone works out and people in Europe staying up late. So, so that's the lean product meetup. There's links to it again from my website, free to join. And each month we bring in a top speaker. So, so those are, and then on LinkedIn, of course, people can, a lot of people reach out to me on LinkedIn too. Well, we'll make sure we put all that in show notes so people can find you if they, if they haven't, so they don't have to remember, but that is, I watched a couple of your, your presentations that were, they're just awesome. <laughs> so you do it. You do a great job. Oh, thanks, Paul. Yeah. It's always fun to speak. And I'm excited because this year is the year in-person conferences, product events are coming back strong. Yeah. You know, last year there were a couple, but this year. They're coming back really strong, so I'm excited. Yeah, it's exciting, exciting. Okay, Dan. Well, I sure appreciate you stopping by and, and checking checking in on us. This is really great. Just appreciate everything you had to share. Any final remark before we kind of close up? No, just you know, just say again, just a reminder: start with the problem, not the solution. That's kind of my main mantra here for new PMs. And uh, no, it's been a pleasure to talk with you. I had a lot of fun. So I appreciate it. Thanks, Paul. Have a great week, Dan. And thanks for listening, everybody. I hope you enjoyed that. Dan is amazing. He's amazing to listen to. So go do check him out. Check out his book. Check out his website. The website's going to tell you all about Dan and anything you want to know. It's a, it's a very good website, too. 
Wish you a great week ahead. Take care, everybody. Bye for now. Thanks for joining us this week for Innovation Talks with Paul Heller. If you enjoyed the show, please like and subscribe on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple, or wherever you listen to podcasts. For additional information on today's topic, check out sophion.com, S-O-P-H-E-O-N.com, where you will find plenty of innovation-centric content and corporate best practices. If you'd like to discuss anything with Paul or would like to get in touch with the show, email us at talks at sophion.com.